I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Last Night at School Committee. Ross Wilson and I are here to summarize for you what happened last night during the Boston Public Schools School Committee meeting. Ross, good morning. Good morning, Jill. Uh, Last night was a relatively short meeting, and the content covered was around school choice, which we'll get into, and around the district improvement plan, which is a required report to the Department of Education. But let's start, Jill, with the superintendent report. Basically, we heard the same exact report from the last meeting, uh, which is about, you know, we have a process for engaging in more kids in summer school. We have a process for getting more kids involved in, in summer jobs. And just incrementally, it seems like more kids may be registering, but without any real data. We also heard a little bit about the different events that the superintendent and the mayor have done over the last couple of weeks. Yeah, so that was exciting. Then the first presentation of the night was a recommendation from Boston Public Schools to school committee recommending to vote no on school choice. And so the vote will take place at the next school committee meeting. But here's the rationale for that. Here's Denise Snyder. Our student assignment processes for the coming year stay very active right up through October. We project just about 50,000 students to be enrolled, a slight increase from the 49,000 271 this year, and this includes students who enroll by October 1, so basically all summer into early fall. Under the Interstate Choice Program, we would have to host enrollments for empty seats by July 1st and again by November 1st, thereby likely limiting access for current and new residents who continue to enroll through the fall. Allowing non-residents to enroll would likely impede placement of our late arriving students. Okay, just by the way, 50,000 is the projected. I think that Denise needs to sync up with Nate Cooter because a meeting or two ago, Nate Cooter sort of talked about projections being below what they are this year. And what they are this year is... Is it 48,000? Is it 49,000? We Uh, really can't get a direct number. But that, I feel like hmm, there were 54,000 kids in the district four years ago, five years ago. We, we've lost at least 5,000 kids. Jill, but like we shouldn't, we're like we're bouncing around the room on on the enrollment. Like the last meeting, I thought we finally got to clarity where CFO Cooter said very clearly, we have declining enrollment, period. And that was a fact and everybody owned it. And it's like, we have both a physical cliff coming up and we have declining enrollment and we should be concerned and we have a hard days ahead. And then last night- Well, you can't then use increasing enrollment as a reason to vote no on school Right, then last night it was like, what, the enrollment increase? How is that possible? They should probably talk to each other before the the meeting. You know, just to clarify, can you talk a little bit about what, what exactly is school choice? How do you get it? And why do you vote yes or no on it? And when do you vote yes or no on it? Sure, sure. So, so Jill, school choice has been around for a really long time, not yeah. only in the state of Massachusetts, but in other states around the country. And this is simply an option. If you go to school in one city or town and your district allows for school choice, you have the option for your student to go to another district or town that offers school choice. Mm-hmm. And those districts who opt in have the ability to send children to your district. And so it's, it's simply giving families options to go to another district should they deem that there's better educational options. Okay. The majority of districts do opt into school choice, and right. they're literally all mostly in the central western part of our state. And all fairly homogenous. Homogenous districts, right. Yeah. So Socioeconomically homogenous. And racially. Racially, yep. socioeconomically. And racially. Yep. 
homogenous districts opt into school choice. So they both have their students leave and they receive students into districts. And then we see this ring around the city of Boston that is does not opt in. So the city of Boston does not opt in and all of the surrounding, basically 495 belt mm -hmm. around Boston mm -hmm. does not opt in. Those are not homogenous districts, right? The homogeny right. is around the 495 belt right. where we see higher income districts less racially diverse districts, mm -hmm. mostly white mm -hmm. Asian families live in those districts. Mm -hmm. And Boston, mm -hmm. which in Boston and Chelsea and other some other gateway cities just in the greater Boston area, right. though everybody opts out. And there because two reasons, the city of Boston and Chelsea, some others do not want their to lose students to other districts, right? right? They, they believe if they open up choice to families, those families may ultimately choose. And we know that, Jill. We know that families will choose other options. Because they have. Because they have. Because in Metco, right. we have a waiting list for Metco. Right. We have a waiting list in charter schools. We have a waiting list in private schools. Right. We know that if given the choice, families will opt out. We, Jill, we, you and I. That's not an expressed reason. Not though. an expressed reason. We'll so, get into that. Because for BPS. The, the other reason that was given last night was this reason. And, and this is a Superintendent Mary Skipper. We're not allowed where we to participate to sanction which schools the seats would be available for. So in essence, our own students would be competing for some of the seats that are most valuable or needed with students who don't reside within BPS. You know, if you played that out, you take a Madison Park where, you know, um, from a vocational standpoint, our, our city students uh, wanting and needing to get um, certification and vocation you know, that, that would be an example where that would be taking a seat away from um, one of our students uh, so somebody else could participate that lives outside the boundaries. Every year, the rationale for not voting into school choice yeah. is provided to the school committee as a reason because we don't want students to come into our district. It's just too hard. They may take a seat away from somebody. That's the rationale given in a, in every a good year. School, in a high-performing school. They don't ever say that. They simply present to the school committee well, if we allow for school choice, all these people may be coming in. We heard last night, they said they may be coming in and take a seat away from somebody in Madison Park, or it may be a student with a disability coming into the district. But Brandon Cardet Hernandez you know, said you know, very clearly, I'm trying to understand this because we have a declining population in our school district, right? And so that means a declining, it should mean a declining budget as well. It, it means that we're going to have to close school buildings, all of these things that school committees grappling right now. And he personally said that, you know, he was it, it, it allowed him a different education because he had school choice when he when he was a child and he was able to get a better education. In New York. There. Right. Right. And so and so he's you know, he was kind of leaning in and saying, I don't understand. Why aren't we using this as a strategy for growing our population of, of kids? And, you know, one of the questions I had, Ross, is how does the money work? Like, are we afraid of losing money? Does the money follow the child if, if one of our students leaves? Jill, the, how the money works, a district sends a student to another district. Mm -hmm. There's essentially $5,000 that follows that student to the new district. Yeah. Okay. So in the city of Boston, for example, we spend a little bit over $30,000 per student. And if we lost a student, if a student chose to go to a, a different district that had school choice, mm -hmm. essentially 5000 of that $30,000 would go to that new district. But the $25,000 would stay in the district for that empty seat. 
So it doesn't it cause pain then for the receiving school? No. In fact, like a lot of districts have empty seats in a classroom, right? So like, let's say a classroom size is 22 mm-hmm. and they have 21 students in that class. They receive a, di- a student and they're still paying all the same fixed costs and they receive $5,000 extra. So it's a bonus because they're, they have fixed it costs. It works. I mean, this is why so yeah. many districts opt into it yeah. is it works really well. Now, now, Jill, let's be clear. Like, I think you've pointed this out really, really well. Is like the city of Boston is, I don't think, is really concerned about an influx of students. And they actually said this, Jill. They said, look, all the surrounding districts around the city of Boston don't opt in. Right. So they said, you know, why should we opt in? But they're basically then saying at the same time, we're worried about all these students coming in. Yeah. Right. But they're not going to come in. And so let, yeah. this is a really about losing kids, because I do believe if we gave the city of Boston families in the city of Boston a choice mm-hmm. to even drive further away mm-hmm. than they would like to go to a, a, a school that they deem is better for their student, that they deserve that right to do so. Totally. And the biggest question is, what happens if the city of Boston opts in? Right. right. If the city of Boston opts in and says we want school choice, will if if it's true that all these surrounding districts we're going to come in, then they would all opt in too. Yeah. And then we would open up a great opportunity for families to have choice of great schools that they believe are great schools for their kids yeah. all around the city of Boston. That would actually lead to true integration, true racial and economic integration of our schools. Right. And so I think this quite I think we deserves a little more conversation around why not opt into school choice. Don't you wonder, though, who who decided, because it, school choice became policy, who appended school choice to say each community gets to decide yes or no? Yeah, I, that's a great question. We'll, we can look into it. I think yeah. I think what we'll do, though, is post this map. Um, it's a little bit dated from 2017, I believe, of the districts who have opted in, opted it's out. Fascinating. And you, the visual of it is, uh, it does seem to be about segregation. It yeah. does seem to be about not allowing some kids into worrying that some kids may come into our district mm-hmm. and we're in districts worrying that they may lose kids from their district. Mm-hmm. And I think this deserves a lot more attention. Jill, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about a visit that you and I had this week. We went to Dorchester to a really important institution in Dorchester that serves youth. Yes. And we met with the head of this organization and they said to us, we said, how many kids come to this organization? And they said, here's, here's the number. And then we said, how many go to Boston public schools? Like, where do they go to school? Yeah. And the this person said, oh, well over two thirds go to Mecco. Right. And he said, as many families as they can get out of BPS. Right. The, and and they're like, they're excited when a new town starts to offer. Like I think right. I hang 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 just right? started to right. offer right. Mecco. Yeah, but this is this is in this is in like a highly populated part of the city. And the experience of the community leader is that most kids go to Metco and- If the, they can, if they can. And the, the rest of them want to go. And so I think if we had school choice, yeah. potentially we're giving more opportunity for families to make choices for themselves around what may be better educational opportunities for their kids. It's interesting too, the thought exercise that we went through, right? Because you would also probably see other communities leaning into our exam schools and potentially, you know, being disruptive to the process uh, around um, Boston Latin School and the other exam schools. And the question there is, given our current policy, probably most of them would get in because they wouldn't have these 10 points that are well, let's debated. Get, let's get into the exam schools. into the next. Yes, exactly. <laughs> right, right. So Jill, we we didn't hear the superintendent did not discuss exam schools as part of her formal superintendent report, although she was questioned by member Cadet Hernandez after. Mm-hmm. But let's start with a quote of a parent who just experienced receiving the exam school notification on Friday. We noticed the mistakes. 
We've been living in the same address since she started school, yet the wrong tier was used to determine her eligibility. She was assigned her third choice when her second choice is her current school. I'm sorry to say, uh, Superintendent Skipper, but the amazing system that you mentioned earlier still hasn't given us an official answer about the tier mistake in writing. And we, we emailed on Friday. We received a call this morning after leaving eight voicemails five days later to be told that they rerun the numbers and she stays where she's at. No explanation, no transparency, no, no, no uh, reasoning about how this was run and whether the whole system was run or not. Listen, I still believe that the old policy was flawed and the issues that it was creating had to be addressed, but we can do better. There were families who were put in the wrong tier. So their student was wrong in the wrong tier, if you will, processed in the wrong tier, and they lived in a different tier. And some of those families were told that their student now has a seat at an exam school. And others were told no, that they don't have an exam. So, so there is, I mean, this fluidity of like, where are their seats? You know, they're basically saying, all the seats are full and we over-enroll. And then somehow they go back and say, oh, you get in. Because there's a finite number of seats, at least hypothetically, hypothetically. but I think they're, right, they're, then, then you have to redo the whole thing. You have to. Because uh, every, every number counts. Every ranking counts. So it's crazy if that's happening behind the scenes. There, this, there has to be transparency in this process. Totally. People have to trust it. And these things need to be dealt with in an open public way. They need to be named. They need to be dealt with. But but also but in, in the in the person who you know the person who testified last night had has the district been in touch with them? Like is the district did the district calculate things incorrectly or is this just unintended consequences? Like how right. is how how is this being sorted out? Well, let me let me. There's probably two factors here. First, there's um, because they nobody talked about it on on the school committee. Yeah. Strangely enough, this was a major nobody issue. Nobody said a word. Right, right. It's bizarre. B very bizarre last night. It was almost as if some, they were told not to talk about it. Don't you worry though desperately about public process because I, there's I, no way that school committee members didn't hear these stories. Yeah. And so, how did it not come up at least in new business? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if people are scared of legal action against this, but there certainly should be legal action against this because it does not seem clear. And Jill, well, okay, legal action, sure, but but something's wrong with either the input implementation or or the. I mean, we why do we keep having these problems? The, the, like like nobody can do math it, like externally or internally. This is people were worried about the ability of the school system to implement uh, the exam school policy. Yeah, we've seen this play out multiple times already mm -hmm. in implementation where mm -hmm. BPS couldn't tell kids if they're eligible or not. They couldn't calculate the average grades appropriately. Now they're telling kids they're in different tiers. In fact, Jill, they've also done things where a parent will rank choice their, their, their schools and the district, one of the schools is literally the kid's current school, the second choice. And this is what Mono This is what Mono said. And yeah. basically they're like saying, no, we don't have room in your current where school your where your daughter is, is currently. and so you get a new assignment. I mean, these implementation flaws yeah. should be alarming on so many in so many yeah. ways. Yeah. Okay, so I'm not sure where to go with that because it's obviously it's going to be super complicated. I have a I'm solution. assuming it's going to get pretty loud. You I have, have a solution. solution. <laughs> I have a solution. Okay, have what solution. is that? My solution is this, simply. 
if the system says, yeah. look, every student who has a B or higher yeah. is ready to be successful in an exam school. Yeah. And quite frankly, if the chair of the school committee has said all the other schools are not they don't actually help students become career and college ready. Yeah. So they're basically just saying the only schools that you should send kids to are the exam schools. Yeah. So if all the students with B or plus or, or B or higher yeah. are ready to be successful and they apply to an exam school, give them a seat in an exam school. Figure it out. You have empty buildings. You're saying grow, you grow the grow exam them. schools. Make a, yeah. Find another building. Which was basically what? Brandon Cardet Fernandez said is like why we have we have all these kids who are ready to learn and wanting to lean into a very challenging, you know, experience. And so if they are, why 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 can't we meet their needs? Expand them. Yeah. Okay. I mean, rather than say in five years or ten years we may have better options, say we'll expand them. We have expanded other schools in a a heartbeat. Well, wouldn't that be such a beautiful signal to the city though, that we can expand our terrific product? Totally. At will. Sure. We can do, we on. can make we can make our great schools bigger and include more of you because all of you deserve a great school. Totally. Yeah. Okay, I think we should move on. There was other testimony about the Sumner. Right. So Jill, we heard again from Sumner families a, a couple of them about the questions that we asked last time, which was, "Hey, thanks for having a process mm-hmm. and a design team." But we should probably know who the leader of that process is. Mm-hmm. Can can you help us understand who the principal is going to be, who the school leader is, so they could lead the process? These are great questions. You know, and the staff, you know, th- as we raised last time, not all the staff are going to be there. Right. So if we can understand who will be there, they can help guide and lead the design process. But if people don't know if they're going to be at the school or not going to be at the new school, they have a hard time being fully engaged. And this is also goes to transparency and not leading with fear, right? But totally. leading with honesty. And so, you know, like you do want to know if you're sitting in one of those seats on, on the staff and teaching side, am I going to be included? Am I in designing this am I designing for a school I'm yeah. part of? Yeah. Or should I be looking elsewhere? I totally. mean it's it's the honest thing to do. Yeah. That's a good point. And then Jill, we the last report of the night was this systemic improvement plan. Yes. The SIP. The SIP. What is it? We relegated it to a an acronym already, and a weird one. Yeah, um, <laughs> what is it? So, Jill, uh, you know, the the Department of Education of Elementary and Secondary Education did an audit of BPS over a period of time, and there was all this talk, as you recall, of state takeover of the district or or or, or somehow involvement in the improvement of the district. The state identified a few areas that were in drastic need of improvement. Mm-hmm. Those areas included facilities, transportation student safety, multilingual learners, special education, transformation schools, and data. Those are sort of the general areas. And the state required that the district create a plan, the SIP, that showed how they were addressing these areas in a very intentional way to make drastic improvement. Now, what you're going to see, and we'll, we'll bring you through this presentation, kind of led by questions asked from school committee members, which school committee members were so on point last night around looking at this report, that what you're going to see is really specific questions asked and really general answers given. And the report itself is extremely general, Ross, which just, you know, we've discussed this already, but how is that an acceptable report to Desi? It cannot be How an acceptable de- report. Like this is this is at at this this is Desi's fault. Like, well, but that, like, but, like but how it, do you have these like such low expectations for for change management? I uh, will post the presentation. I encourage people to look at it. But like, if this is if this is our improvement plan for our district, 
oh my goodness. Well, it's you know, just where's no, there's it? no clarity. There's no clarity. There's no data. Right. There's no accountability. Right. There's no and the the if I'm Desi, which was why Desi intervened in the first right. place. Like, and I, we're I, a year into this now. Yeah. Right? If you gave this to me and I'm Desi, yeah. I would hand it right back to you and, and say, say, "Good try. Try again." Yeah. Okay. So Brandon Cardet Hernandez asks um, the first question, or his first question was about assessment and performance of schools, and so Drew Eccleson response and we'll let's play that back and forth and i guess this is where these presentations are always hard because it's like the big picture which we value and then credible work that folks are doing or trying to implement or planning to do but i am curious about the sort of assessment you know as we've gone on this journey what have we found how many of our elementary schools are not we're not using phonics programming and so I'm just trying to understand sort of the state of the problem in a deeper way, further than just like what the state told us in those communications. It's sort of like, well, what have we also uncovered given that in many ways this has been a planning year? I did want to make one point of clarification, at least from my perspective, um, that this work toward a shift toward equitable literacy and the science of reading, I think, happened well before the DESI review in the spring and the work um, that came out of the systemic improvement plan. I think this is work that BPS has been leading within the Commonwealth for, for a period of time. I think it is the most critical work we can do. So Jill, um, I think what Mr. Cadet Hernandez is asking is, is very like, tell me how many schools are using these practices, right? Mm-hmm. That, that are like, that are shown to respond to student needs and significantly improve student performance. Right. And what we get back is not an answer, right? It's not, it literally is like a, a non-answer. And again, it, it's the data. It's like getting to the details, the clarity of what you're doing and how you're doing it so we can measure it, not like some grandiose answer with a complete lack of data. Yes, exactly. Saying, you know, reading is very important. How do we make sure that all kids across the district have equity in the programming that we're doing. And like, what are we using to assess that? And it just was a lot of words and people's names. And I guess those are, you know, different products that can be brought into schools. But it didn't didn't make me feel comfortable that we knew that they were being well utilized when it came down. What to, is our current state? Right. What, where kids? do we, where do we need to be? Right. How are, and how do we measure if we're getting there? Like right. that, that's, that's what a plan does. So then school committee member Rafaela Polanco Garcia asks about operations and her question is about kind of now. ¿Qué va a pasar? ¿Qué vamos a hacer? ¿Cuál es el plan? What will happen? What are we going to do? What's the plan? You know, like I go through schools every day right, and right. they are fantastic and people are doing incredible work, but hmm, things are broken, yeah. things need, you know, to be refreshed, the air filters aren't working. Yeah. Is there any plan for just fixing some simple things? para estas escuelas que necesitan reparaciones urgentes, mejores baños, el mejores filtros, que tengan filtros adecuados. Entonces, muchos de muchas de esas escuelas, yo que he tenido la oportunidad de conocerlo, no no se necesita tanto para poder lograr reparar estas situaciones. To do repairs in the schools that are urgent, such as um, fixing the bathrooms or getting filters. Um, which I have had the opportunity to go to so many schools and they, they need this. And it doesn't need a lot for, for these repairs and for these situations. Right? Like, it's almost like, you know, you could hear the mother and her saying, if you could give, give me the air filters, I'll go in and replace them. Yeah. So the head of operations, Sam DePina, answers her question 
with this answer? Um, the plan right now is for us to make sure we capture the data first before we start really investing in large amounts of dollars in investments in larger long-term plans. Well, Jill, I don't know if there's more bureaucratic response to uh, a question. Like, Ms. Blanco Garcia is like, hey, can we paint some walls and yeah. maybe fix some bathrooms? And, and we get back, um, I don't know what we got back. Oh my God, how about call each principal, <laughs> put a send an email out yeah. to the 120 yeah. plus principals and say, hey, what's wrong that I yeah. can fix right now? Yeah. Like, just do like an Low end of year. Yeah. You know, Jill, this is like broken windows, right? It's like, just exactly. fix the broken windows and things get better. But, you know, Jill, I should say, the superintendent did step in after this yes. and did clarify yes. on both on Well, both she marks. basically said, um, I just want to remind you that there's a budget yeah. and we have allocated for these things. And so if we refer to the numbers right. in the budget, you can see how much we're spending and over what period of time. So yeah. there's there was data. It was helpful. And she clarified. She backstopped. Yeah. You know, it almost a, a seems like the superintendent's head of operations. But then Brandon Carnett Hernandez, as we continue through the Q&A around the presentation of the SIP, it is kind of stays on his, hey, could we have metrics? At what point is the school no longer, at what point is a school no longer viable as an option for families? Here, this is a little bit long, but it's, I think it's important to hear both pieces of it, don't you, Ross? Here's the superintendent, followed by Drew Eccleson. Uh, certainly the academic performance is a, is the lead indicator, but what often comes with the academic performance is to look at why you know, what's happening there? How are students getting to that school? Is the school overprogrammed because we're overprogramming that school? You know, is district enrollment, is it a declining enrollment? And so you actually don't have enough enrollment to actually really continue to offer things that are attractive to, to students to come because then that becomes kind of a cycle in and itself. Is it coinciding in a building that, you know, is, is a building that we would not be able to invest in from the facilities report? Um, and we would have to think about moving that building. And so perhaps it makes sense to think about collapsing that process and giving fresh start in a different way with the community. I think those are the, the types of elements that we're going to be looking at. Oftentimes when we see the, kind of this ingrained kind of culture, stagnation, constant door of, of staff, low enrollment, you know, these are all the kind of signs that the, the school in many ways is on a life support. And Dr. Eccleson added. We need to have conversations as an organization and bring policy forward about when we either ramp a school off of transformation or put a school onto uh, so the level of supports that are equivalent to Transformation Schools Network. And then, this seemed aggressive, but Drew Eccleson then makes this comment about accountability and central office support and, and you know, kind of positions it as they are not on the same team a little bit. There are things that have to be universally true. And there also have to be systems that are demonstrating that the, that the central office is accountable for providing the types of support that our schools and our school leaders need in order to make continuous improvement. And when that continuous improvement doesn't happen with high levels of support, there has to be met with really difficult conversations that are connected to equal units of accountability. Yeah. So Jill, I think a couple of things out of these comments. So first, first and foremost, Dr. Eccleson is is basically saying, look, this is kind of a facilities issue in terms of transformation schools. However, it, it does seem like the superintendent is saying, no, it's an academic issue. And let me tell you how we actually deem if a school is viable or not. 
So there seems to be some disconnect there and yeah. thankful to the superintendent for providing some clarity around how do we make decisions around our schools viable. And, and this is really, to, to, the, to your point, Jill, the transparency for families, the transparency for educators around what are the things we're looking at and how do we make decisions around which schools should continue and which schools shouldn't. It's not facilities, Jill. It's, it's what's happening in those classrooms and in those schools every day. But then, Jill, you pointed out, you know, Dr. Eccleson put out this idea that, look, it's, it's definitely like a command and control kind of thing mm -hmm. where he's like, if you got, if, if schools do what we tell them to do, then everything's going to be okay. Mm -hmm. And if they don't, there's going to be a reckoning. Because we're providing, right? we're, when we are providing all of the support and you're not executing, then, then we're done with you. Yeah. It's just, yeah. what? How uh, are you not all on the same team? Jill, so, How can you be like a general operating? It just doesn't feel fair. It feels very top down. It doesn't feel fair. And I'll tell you, there's an ingredient missing. Mm. So I think Dr. Eccleson talked about support and accountability, Yeah. but he missed clarity. What do you mean? What are the metrics? What are we expecting people to do? What are the things, how we measure success? Mm -hmm. How do we know what your benchmarks are? How mm -hmm. do we know if you're moving towards those benchmarks? Zero clarity was presented in the SIP last night. Yeah. We heard about, you know, words like support and accountability, but I think we're missing the clarity. What is the action plan? How are we expecting people to achieve that? That's, that's what was completely missing from the SIP. So maybe the most important thing that Desi could do would be to backstop and support what the school committee members continuously pr uh, pointed out in this presentation, which was that they're missing clarity. Okay. I'm with you, Jill. Jill, just a couple of reflections here. Number one, it seems like you know the SIP, again, was lacking details. The superintendent's team failed to give clear responses. And each time, the superintendent had to step in and provide further clarification. It would be wonderful if that wasn't needed. And then in fact, if everybody leading the work, each member of the team leading the work could provide the same clarity the superintendent had to provide. And and if this is and this is a piece of what Desi is requiring, then Desi needs to require the right information. And, exactly. And so they're And be supportive of the new superintendent. This all happened before she arrived. Clarity, support, and accountability. Desi needs to provide that to the district. The district needs to respond. Jill, I just want to provide one other reflection. And this is more of a political reflection. It does seem that there is a strategy employed here, and I'm, and I'm not sure if it's from City Hall, but it may be, to delay. And I'll, I'll use the exam schools as an example. The exam school invitations came out on Friday, mm -hmm. and we heard from school committee last night that nobody's going to talk about it until June. Mm -hmm. I believe there is a strategy here that if we don't talk about it publicly, that people will lose their energy, they'll lose their focus of it, on it, and they'll find other options, and, and they'll move on. And um, I believe that is a concerted effort to, to quiet uh, the community. I believe the same thing with the Green New Deal. It, 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 if we keep on saying that something's going to come in the future, um, it quiets people down. It tells them, hey, don't worry. We're going to put that in the, in the Green New Deal. We've seen this play out in previous administrations. I believe there is an intentional effort to, yeah. to delay. And people lose attention and they lose focus. Sure. And, and so what if, uh, and I believe the same tactic is being used with school committee. School committee constantly asks for data. They ask for follow-up. They're not provided it. Yeah. And what if the strategy was at the next meeting, Jill, what if we just had the whole meeting on responding to school committee members' questions? Right. Then we would have answers. I would implore that school committee members do not approve the minutes from the previous meeting until they're reflective of the questions that were asked and, and provided answers to the questions from the previous meeting from school committee members. The school committee members are asking the right questions. 
they're not getting the answers. They cannot do their jobs if they don't have the answers. And it's time they get the answers to their questions. Actually, I like that a lot because it could just be in the superintendent's report. It could just be the first part. of yeah. the, Here's what you asked last week and here and are the here answers. here are the answers. Very specifically, here's the handout. Here's all the numbers. It's accessible to everyone in the community. And here's what else is happening. I like it. Yeah. Easy thanks. to do. Thanks, Jill. And that's what happened last night at the Boston Public Schools School Committee meeting. We want to hear from you. If you have thoughts or concerns about how BPS is serving your students, please send us an email at podcast at shawfoundation.org. That's S-H-A-H foundation.org. Thank you for listening to Last Night at School Committee. We hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your fellow friends, parents, and residents of Boston. We all have a stake in the future success of Boston students. Have a great day.